0: In terms of how many plugins do you have on the output fader or that you use in mastering, it's as, as many as you need, but ideally as few as possible. If you can do it just with a level change, great. If you can do it with level and just a little bit of EQ, fantastic.
1: Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw, your host for Recording Studio Rockstars, the podcast bringing you inside the recording studio. I created the show to introduce you to real world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your recordings to the next level and become a rock star of the recording studio yourself. My guest on the show today is joining us from the UK through the wonders of Skype and the internet. Ian Shepherd is a professional mastering engineer and owner of Mastering Media Limited. Ian has mastered thousands of CDs, DVDs, and Blu-rays for all the major record labels, TV stations, and independents, including several number one singles and award-winning albums. Some of the artists and clients include Keen, Tricky, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Osric Tentacles, Christine Tobin, and even King Crimson and New Order, among many others. Ian has taken all of that experience and created a super cool blog called Production Advice. This is an awesome resource that can help you with your mastering, whether you are just starting out and wanting to master from home on your laptop or looking to deepen your understanding of what mastering is really all about, we will also talk with Ian about his Home Mastering Masterclass and also about his cool plugins. So welcome, Ian Shepard. Are you ready to rock?
0: (laughs) I'm ready to rock. (laughs) Excellent, man. I think I'm too English to say that.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes, Yes, I'm ready to rock. I, Jolly I've, good show. I've listened to your voice on your, your YouTubes, and I love the sound of your voice. I feel like I'm listening into Top Gear or something like that, one of these great <laughs> BBC shows.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. I uh, it, Actually, it's a, it's a weird thing because I, uh, I don't know about you, but I was pretty self-conscious when I started t- recording myself and, and doing videos and stuff. Um, and I've actually had people say you know that they like my voice and they think I should do audiobooks and stuff which is kind of kind of flattering but also kind of weird no
1: i think you should i think you have a great sounding voice can i hear you say tardis for for a uh, <laughs> doctor who reference
0: tardis okay but it reminds me see i have to tell you i just saw a thing on uh, social media somewhere which is a hoodie i don't think it exists I think it, you know. I think it's some, somebody's made it up, but it, it has. It's very cool because it has a treble clef with a musical stave on it, um, and it has four four, which says common time, and then I think it has nine eight, which is compound time, and then it has seven eight, which is complex time, and then it has a TARDIS, and it says wibbly wobbly timey wimey.
1: <laughs> I think we do a lot of that here sometimes, you know, <laughs> yeah. live musicians and all. Well, so Ian, I'm excited to have you on the show. I've given our listeners, our rock stars, a a brief introduction to who you are. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself in your own words and and how you got started in this?
0: Yeah, so, so I've been mastering professionally for 20 years now, which is scary. And I think I'm unusual because I went straight into mastering after pretty much after college. So I did I did physics with music at college, two separate courses. So I'd literally do quantum mechanics in the morning and then Bach chorales in the afternoon. Um, wow. But they had a, the, the the physics department had an acoustics section and they had a recording studio. And then the second year, they had a brand new recording studio, which was really cool, except that the builders didn't believe the plans and they concreted all of the cable channels up. So for the first year, we were we had the cables just going through the, the gaps in the glass, the triple glazed doors, you know, was, which was a bit of a shame. So I did that and and I worked on the live sound crew um, at the, the union, you know, when bands came in to, to play gigs and stuff. Um, and then I left and sent off loads of letters trying to get, jobs in places, um, worked at a local studio for free. And then I got offered this job at uh, SRT, Sound Recording Technology, which was the company I worked for first, uh, which as far as I knew was a cassette duplication plant. Um, They did do cassette duplication. And prior to that, they had done vinyl pressing. But by the time they got in touch with me, they were, it's a CD mastering uh, facility. I knew nothing about CD mastering, just said yes, because it was a job in the industry. And uh, I ended up being there for 15 years. So it was, I was really, you know, lots of mastering guys have already had a career as recording engineers or mixers or producers, and then they get into mastering later on. Um, At least that's how it used to be, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas I kind of, I was trained from the ground up pretty much. And yeah, so that's kind of it in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, I've certainly heard stories of mastering engineers here, like Hank Williams, for example, talking about starting out as a tape op and and assembling tape and then just kind of, you know that gets assembled and then sent to the vinyl, and then before you know it, you're a mastering engineer.
0: Yeah, well, there's a fascinating bit in the book um, Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust, fantastic book. Everybody should read that book, where he talks about starting out at Abbey Road back in the, the like mm, 50s or 60s, and you became a mastering engineer first because back then it was like it was crucial to know what the the format could handle in terms of in terms of level in terms of bass in terms of sibilance so you would cut lacquers you know reference copies for people and stuff first and it was only when you would got the hang of that that you were allowed into the recording studio um but uh, yeah i didn't do the kind of that standard tape op group but i, but I did start off you know m- for the first i don't know six months or so i was basically copying tapes just compiling compilation albums from stuff that had already been mastered and it was just you know track three from this track four from that so it was learning about digital sync and, uh, reference tones and, you know, listening for technical faults and gaps, spacing, PQ, all that stuff we don't have to worry about anymore because the computer does it all for us.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, have you experienced any bit of a resurgence in vinyl mastering or, or, people releasing vinyl records over in the UK, like we've seen here in Nashville, for example?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't do, I don't do vinyl cutting myself, but I've had um, four or five projects in the last year where people have said specifically, you know, have uh, requested 24-bit files that are going to then be sent on for vinyl mastering. Um, so yeah, definitely it's, it's, it's a thing here as well. That's pretty cool. So now you've been in this for
1: long enough to have seen some different formats come and go. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen as far as, um, you know, what's the listener's experience? What are they listening to music on through your career and, and what are they listening to music on today?
0: The interesting thing is, I mean, it's it's for my career. It's always been digital. I mean, the funny thing is, when I started out at SRT, the big selling point was that it was 100% digital mastering. You know, nowadays everybody's like, oh, it's all about the analog processing chain because that's the stuff that costs the money. But back then, if you wanted to master, a, I mean, you needed several hundred thousand pounds worth of gear just to create a CD master, and the CD master was a a U-matic tape. You know, like a like an old Betamax video cartridge. Oh
1: yeah, was it like an F one or something like that? I remember some form no, like well, that. Well, no,
0: they, they actually okay. So it wasn't like a Betamax because that was like an, an F one. Basically, was a Betamax. So no, it was it was bigger, um, much bigger than a VHS cartridge or anything else. Big chunky cassette thing with a huge machine, and then you needed a. You had a 1630 processor and you had a computer to do the, the PQ encoding, the start and end IDs and all that stuff. And and that tape was the only way to get, and that would go off to the plant for the glass mastering. And I mean, I remember when recordable CDRs first came in, you know, and they were £20 a go. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever that is, 30 $35. And you recorded them in real time.
1: Yeah, and as I recall, if you were an artist and you were getting a reference copy of your CD to take home with you to listen to how your mastered record would sound, it might cost $200 per copy or something like that.
0: They used to, yeah, they used to mark them up. um, to. But I mean, even then, that's because they were run in real time and probably the studio only had one CD recorder, you know, and the blanks costing 20 quid each. Well, the recorder probably cost a a fortune. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, and it was a big deal to get a CD to take home with you you know, back in those days, people were excited about CDs, it kind of sounds. Um, <laughs> but today, it's it's not like that today, though, yeah. Well, no, in terms of the listener experience, I don't know how much has changed. I guess it went, I don't even think, I think it went through a bad patch, because, you know, CD carried on, MP3 came in, but it wasn't really an alternative to CD. Now, at the point where CD's actually being, kind of fading away, I would say that the the lossy encoded stuff, you know, the AAC that you get on iTunes and... I mean, even the I'm I'm not a big MP3 fan, but you uh, you can get a reasonable quality MP3. Um, So the difference in terms for the for listener in terms of those formats is probably not that huge. It's not nowhere near as big as the difference from people kind of upgrading from vinyl or cassette, for example. Mm -hmm. Although Bobby Ozinski just said that cassette is having a a comeback as well, which is well, that's very cool. I'm glad to hear
1: you reference Bobby. Can you uh, introduce Bobby Ozinski to our listeners because he's a great resource as
0: well absolutely if if you guys aren't listening to his podcast i highly recommend it so i first came across bobby mm, yeah probably almost 20 years ago i was when i first maybe a few years after i got into mastering uh there was <laughs> the internet was a new thing and there was this thing called the mastering web board which was basically uh a forum um but it was very primitive you know in comparison to say gear sluts or whatever we we use nowadays um and there was a bunch of mastering engineers who we would get on there and you know kind of Talk about stuff and gear and all the rest of it. And he was there then, uh, you know, writing books. I mean, he worked, I believe, as a, uh, a recording engineer and a producer, um, and then moved into, he's written some insane number of books. It's something like 20 or 30 books now. It's interesting because he's talking to independent musicians, but he also has that kind of music industry perspective on things. So I'm always interested to hear, you know, his take on Apple Music or his take on the latest copyright thing or, you know, some of the stuff that's going on in the industry that which I I find really interesting. Yeah, he's always got new
1: stuff happening in music so you can kind of feel up to date with everything. So you started out in mastering. You've seen us go through all these different formats and you've been mastering for years. Have you worked in a number of different mastering studios? Have you um, always mastered from your own studio? What's that been like for
0: you? So I, I literally went from college to SRT where I worked. Sadly, they've closed now, but it was one of the, the UK's leading independent mastering facilities. And I, and I worked there for 15 years. In that time, I was really lucky because I got to do a whole range of things. So for example, the, the room that I was in, a small recording room, attached to it and i had uh there was a dmc 1000 the yamaha digital desk the kind of precursor to the o2r 96 and all those new digital desks that yamaha brought out but this thing was was massive built like a a battleship all kind of sculpted out of aluminium it was beautiful um and and that was 20-bit recording that we had in there i had one of the first 20-bit eight-track recorders which was a big deal back then uh this was Sorry. when is this nineteen ninety four, ninety-five, ninety-six, I guess. And there was the, the boss, uh, the owner of the, the company had his Steinway in the room next door. So we would do I recorded a few little bands, it wasn't really suitable to bands, but quite a lot of small classical ensembles and small jazz ensembles in there. I also got into I don't know whether you remember enhanced CDs where you would put a little QuickTime video on the hidden away on the end of the cd so you could play the cd in a cd player and you you put it in a computer and and watch the video that's right so we we got into those early on and that was that was how i got into into working in dvd and we did loads of dvds so i was doing dvd authoring and also surround sound mixing for the soundtracks because we specialized in music soundtracks so i did i mixed a a DVD of Culture Club, um, their 20th anniversary concert at the Royal Albert Hall and uh, a bunch of other. I kind of, I had a, I specialized in uh, 80s um, artists kind of coming back out of retirement
1: I remember I was watching some of your YouTube videos where you were talking about um, retaining the dynamic in, in your mix or of a mix when you're mastering and, and you were using some 80s references. It sounded great. So Ian, tell us, you know, for somebody who's tuning in now, who's maybe sort of just beginning out with this, what is mastering? So you know, it sounds like it's some pretty complicated rocket science if we just listen to you know, the beginning of the show to now. Can you
0: sort of explain and outline a little bit of just what it is? It's actually really simple. Um, everybody kind of talks about the black art and all the rest of it, but my favorite analogy for it, which I stole from Howie Weinberg, is that it is uh, it's like Photoshop for audio. Um, so you know, if you take a digital photograph with your camera, uh, you think it's great, you get it as good as you can, and then you, you, I don't know, maybe you want to print it out and put it on the wall, or you want to post it somewhere, and you suddenly go, Oh, hang on, I need to do some red eye correction, and I want to change the crop, and I want to adjust the color balance and hype up the contrast a bit, and maybe clone out that huge zit on my face, or, you know, whatever it is. Mastering is kind of like that for audio. It's about taking the mixes, which are obviously the best you could get from the recording and the mix. And, and taking them to the next level. And in particular, I guess the Photoshop analogy works, but it's almost more like if you wanted to do an exhibition of your photos. So you're going to choose 10 photos and put them up in a in a gallery. How large am I going to print this one? Maybe this one's going to be black and white. How much space is there going to be between them? Which one's going to go opposite the window? Which one's going to go in that little section over there? It's, so if mixing is balancing the tracks within a song to make a, a song, I would say that mastering is balancing the song's within an album, to make an album. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's how loud should one song be in comparison to another, tweaking the EQ, working with the dynamics to get the, the best possible result. But the actual process of it is, well, so one of my pet hates is, is YouTube videos that kind of have, you know, seven steps to this, that, and the other in mastering. And they kind of give you the impression that you just throw the kitchen sink at it. And people are always sending me their mastering chains where they're saying, well, I just use... And then they reel off like 10 plugins in a row. And for me... 90% of the time, uh, mastering is EQ, compression, and limiting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and that's it. Um, when I started out mastering, when the, the the loudness wars hadn't really kind of fully kicked off, it was just EQ and limiting. Um, well, so hold on, let me stop you right there, for especially for somebody who's new to this. What are the loudness wars? People think that louder is better. And louder, it, it is true, if you play to somebody two things that are otherwise the, exactly the same, the one that is slightly louder will sound slightly better to them. You hear slightly more bass, slightly more treble, and nobody knows why. It could be, um, you know, some kind of evolutionary thing where we, the the, the saber-toothed tiger that's breathing yeah. down our neck is, is more important to pay attention to than the one that's kind of over there behind that bush. So our brains make things that we think are closer more important to us. I mean, who knows? Anyway, size is important, and and, you know, that applies to sound as well. It, basically what that means is if you start turning things up, you can make things sound better without actually making any improvement. That works, providing you've got enough headroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is all the physical formats that we have, whether it's vinyl or cassette or, you know, and, and digital, have some kind of limit on, on how loud you can go. And in digital, it's 0 dB full scale. And once the, the peak level of your signal starts getting up close to that, it's either going to clip, which is probably going to sound nasty, or you have to do something else with it. That means compression or limiting or soft clipping or overdriving converters, something. There's always a compromise involved in those. And what's happened is over the years, in an attempt to sound better than everybody else, people have just gradually pushed the level up of what's going down into the into the file, basically, Yeah. Um, so that th- there's just nowhere else for it to go. There's no room at all. The music is getting crushed up against that brick wall ceiling. And that's that's the loudness wars. It's the idea of everybody wanting to be louder than everybody else. Well, yeah, and it used to be,
1: you know, back in the '90s and, and early 2000s, even you'd have a couple of CDs and you put one in, and it sounds a little louder than the other one, and you might think that sounds pretty good, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fooling you. It's st- it still works. And, I mean, it's something that we all knew as mastering engineers back then. I mean, one thing is people didn't, weren't able to compare things the way they are now, you know? I mean, because nobody had, well, Cubase Audio was a new thing a few years after I started working as a mastering engineer. And so prior to that, people would bring in maybe a DAT, you know, or an analog tape as a master. You would do your thing. They'd take the CD away. They had no way to do that direct comparison. So if it was a little bit louder, they'd be like, yeah, this is, it's, you know, that's great. And it, that's fine, providing you've got that headroom Right, right. It's when you run out that there's that there's a problem, and that's kind of in the last maybe 10 years or so that that's happened.
1: Yeah, and um, but we don't really have that experience now. I mean, you may have a CD and put it in your, your car stereo or your home stereo and compare some CD to another, but now the experience has changed, right? I mean, we have MP3s, we have AAC files that are delivered to us through iTunes and iTunes Radio and, and um, Spotify and other formats, and that differentiation between mixes is changed significantly.
0: That's absolutely right. Because the number one source of complaints from people using YouTube and Spotify and Apple Music and all the rest of it is when there are big changes in loudness. I mean everybody knows it. If you've loaded a load of stuff up to your iPod um, and you hit shuffle and the level keeps jumping up and down, it's really annoying. So they've all come up with technological solutions to that. So what they do is they manage the loudness. They Estimate or they measure what they think the loudness of the music is, and they play it all back at a consistent level, and that now applies to Spotify and YouTube and Pandora and iTunes Radio, and I mean to be honest, it even applies when people listen at home. I mean, the first thing you do when you put a CD on is adjust the listening level so that it's comfortable for what you know. If you're at a dinner party, you turn it down, and if you're, you know, um, a regular party, you crank it up. Yeah. Um. But but you make that decision based on what you hear coming out of the speakers in the first twenty or thirty seconds. So that advantage of being loud in quotes, doesn't really last very long, even in that traditional setting. And I mean, what we hear on the radio, and on, well, on TV now, it's regulated by law, in the US at least, because yeah. uh, people were so annoyed about adverts that they introduced this thing called the Calm Act so as a broadcaster, you're now required to play everything back at a, a regulated loudness level. And on radio, it works slightly differently. They run it through extra processing to achieve that, but it, they've always evened out the, the levels on radio so that you can have a consistently high signal level for areas where the, the radio signal was weak.
1: Yeah, and I mean, people's experience these days is playing it off of Spotify, you know, yeah. or something like that. So I, mean, so I mean, like those old challenges don't even exist anymore.
0: No, I mean I, I I've done a video in the past uh, that's basically kind of runs on the thing that loudness is pointless um, nice. now that's not exactly true because what I will say is that I mean as a mastering engineer one of the things I do is make things louder pretty much consistently mm-hmm. um, too loud is bad but too quiet can also be a problem too dynamic you know if you have if you don't have enough dynamic management in the mix you might have uh, a song where you know the The chorus sounds great but then the verse kind of just disappears away from you you know it doesn't have that same presence so you so you adjust the volume level so that the verse sounds right and then when the chorus comes in it blasts you or you know it doesn't work in slightly noisier environments or it doesn't sound so good on smaller headphones that kind of stuff so you definitely need to optimize the dynamics the the amount of contrast between loud and soft so
1: basically you you help people make their record sound awesome
0: yeah <laughs> I like it's, it. It, it's about finding it's about finding the sweet spot
1: i like to sum it up like that just make it sound great you know
0: yeah absolutely i know well, the, yeah that's the tagline on my website is make your music sound great
1: right right um, oh yeah we didn't i should have added that in the quote in the intro but um <laughs> i'll paraphrase it basically you said you want people to have a jaw-dropping experience of a record sounding so awesome
0: exactly i i, I want them to kind of say that sounded amazing you know that's that's my goal. That's, yeah. There's been a few times when that's happened to, for me with uh, stuff that I've worked on, and I want everybody to have that happen to them. Okay, so let me jump right in
1: here. You know, it starts to get a little bit heady talking about the loudness wars and and you know some of the older technology. Yet here we are today, and you have gone out of your way as a professional mastering engineer to create resources for those of us who might want to master our own records or even just get a better understanding of what it is to have our records mastered so that they sound amazing and fantastic with today's technology. So mm-hmm. what, tell, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you, you now have a really cool course, the home mastering class. Would you like to talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm a professional mastering engineer. I've spent 20 years learning how to do this. Um, I'm still learning how to do it. So Of course, if you want the absolute best for your music, I would always say bring your music to me um, or somebody else like me. Um, But I'm also aware that um, not everybody can do that and not everybody wants to do that, you know? There are people, so many people out there who, I mean, the whole process, recording, mixing, producing, it all fascinates them. And why would that be any different for mastering? My perspective on that is they're never going to want to pay me or anybody else to do that for them. I want to help them do a good job of it, you know, because what I saw when I first started kind of exploring what was out there online and what you see all the time on the forums and stuff is just so much of what is bad advice, in my opinion, Hmm. Um, like, you know, people just putting 10, 15 plugins on their master bus, stereo bus, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so now wait can i put 14 on is that cool or 13 <laughs> you can have three <laughs> three all right <laughs> and be thankful no i mean it's the uh, magic you, number you know <laughs> well th- there you go it's it's not about the number it's it's uh, well for me it's about minimism one of the things that i cover in the course is this idea that stage one you get the level right the loudness of the song um, meaning how loud it is in comparison to everything else then you can listen to it and make a fair judgment with the EQ. Because just going back briefly to that whole thing about th- the reason that louder sounds better to us than quiet sounds is because of this thing called the, the Fletcher-Munson curve or the, uh, the equal loudness curve, the smile curve. It's the reason that old amplifiers used to have a loudness button on. So when you turn it down, when you turn sounds down, you hear less bass and treble. It's it's just a thing that happens in our brain when we hear it.
1: Well, hold, hold, let me interject this. So it used to be, you know, you'd go down to the to the store and you'd get one of these big, giant stereos that has the tuner knob in it and everything and, and would connect to your record player. And there was a button on there always called loudness. That's,
0: that's the thing. That was, you turned the level down, you would hear less bass and treble. So you push that button and some of that bass and treble would come back. Mm-hmm. And nowadays it's actually built in because we have... There's DSP, there's computer chips in everything. Um, it's pr- Most modern amps, you turn it down, it does that automatically, and it scales it depending on the level, so it's more effective than the original thing. But it was. it's weird that it was called a loudness button because really it was there for listening to music quietly. Right. It, was the, it should have been uh, called the quietness button. It should have been called the quietness button. Um, I guess that doesn't sell as well. What that means is if you change the level of something, it changes the way you hear the EQ, Right. I mean, one of the things I recommend on the course is that people use reference tracks. The challenge of mastering your own music in a home studio is you don't have a professional mastering studio and you weren't trained as a pro mastering engineer. So how do you know what it should sound like in the first place? And the answer is to get reference tracks, to get songs that you think sound amazing everywhere, choose the in the genre that kind of fits with what you're trying to do, and you compare your stuff. But if you do that with an unmastered mix and a mastered mix your unmastered mix is going to sound puny in comparison because the mastered mix has had all of this processing done to it to lift it up into the sweet spot and possibly beyond, you know, and to optimize the EQ and the stereo width and all that kind of stuff. That's not a fair comparison for you to just listen to that in terms of your mix because, because it's louder, it will just automatically sound better. So what you want to do is turn the level of that down until you're hearing a similar loudness to your song. And then you can start to make a fair comparison and the, the same thing applies at all stages of mastering. Whenever you compare anything, you should equalize the loudness to make that comparison. So if the first thing you do is set the level so that you can make that fair judgment, then you can judge the EQ. Then you can think about, well, are the dynamics working? But as soon as you change the EQ, you change how loud it seems to be. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you change, if you, if you add compression or limiting... You're changing the relationship between the loud and the soft stuff, right? So you're also changing how loud it seems to be. So then you have to go back to the listener and think, well, is the level now right? So you tweak the level again, and then you think again about the EQ and then about the compression, and you go round and round in this, and you kind of hone in on this perfect uh, sound for the song. You used a
1: word earlier that I want to reference here, because it's a very British term for making music, and I love it. It's called balancing, you guys, in in the UK, you talk about doing a mix of music, and you call you say we balanced the mix, you mm-hmm. know, or um, and then you talked about balancing the songs in the mastering process between different songs, and now you're talking about balancing these different elements that will make up the final
0: master for that individual song. It's all about balance, and the thing that I like to say is it's about balance. It's not about matching. There are people who think that like there are plugins, you know, there are EQ plugins that will analyse the EQ of one song and then kind of bolt it onto another song to try and make one sound like the other. And people think that that might be a useful tool in mastering. And actually, it's kind of almost completely useless because, I mean, just to take an extreme example, why would you want an acoustic guitar ballad to match the sound of a full-on rock tune? You know, you wouldn't. You want them to work next to each other you want them to to sound like they're in the same sonic world, but you don't want the acoustic guitar ballad to be as loud or as bassy or as trebly as a as a full band arrangement. Mm-hmm. So you're not matching those two songs to each other. You're balancing them next to each other. And so balancing doesn't even necessarily mean that they are equal. It just means they're kind of the relationship with them is is perfect. It's kind of I this is where the scientist to me starts coming out because it's it's almost like a mathematical thing, you know? It's almost like a well, you know that thing if, when you're balancing things, you know, old-fashioned scales where you have, you know, you have your vegetables on one side and then you put lead weights on the other. And when, you, when the thing right. balances, you I, know.
1: I, I do that all the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's going to be people listening to this going, you, you do what? It's like you just put it on the thing and the computer beeps. Anyway, what happens if you make one side of the scales longer, right? The lever effect comes into place, yeah? So suddenly something that is half the weight can exert twice the, so you can have a smaller thing balancing with a bigger thing. It's still balanced, but there's no way those two things are equal. Yeah, And it's, it's the same in music. And so that's why I kind of go on about balance all the time, because just to go back to what I was saying before, the whole point about doing that process that I described, level, then EQ, then compression, then listen again, is that if you just turn the song up and it sounds perfect, well, then your job's done. Yeah. It's it's still been mastered, right? Because the mastering process is the is, is the process of listening to that song, deciding how loud it should be and then going it sounds great. But and you haven't done any processing at all. So in terms of how many plugins do you have on the output fader or, you know, that you use in mastering, it's as, as many as you need, but ideally as few as possible. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm all about minimalism, you know. It's all about kind of, if you can do it just with a level change, great. If you can do it with level and just a little bit of EQ, fantastic. Yeah. A little bit of gentle compression is needed, all well and good. If you need some limiting, fair enough. Okay, we need some tape saturation, we need some distortion, we need some stereo width stuff, we need some MS processing, whatever. You know, there's all kinds of stuff you can throw into the mix, but only if it's needed. Um, and that's, yeah. Well, so
1: let me ask you this question. What are some of the most frequent questions that you get from people initially when they're trying to learn how to master themselves? What are the things that people mostly want to know about that you have gone out of your way to make available to us and teach us in the home mastering class?
0: The big one is how loud should it be? Uh, you know, how loud is loud enough and how loud is too loud. Then after that, it's because it's interesting, you've put me on the spot there slightly, because what the course is now, I've been running it for a couple of, two or three years. Whenever the course runs, every week people get to send me questions that mm-hmm. I I answer to them in a, either a podcast or, or a video. But what I do is when there are commonly asked questions, I make new stuff to go in the course so that those questions don't come up again. Mm-hmm. So it's now got to the stage where actually there aren't that many questions that come back to me. The first video in the course is called Home Mastering Essentials, and it's basically the thing I was just telling you about, that process of level EQ and compression, but with more information, more context, I tell people how to choose... Like, one of the big things is how loud should your monitors be when you're mastering. Mm -hmm. So I go through that whole process of how do you set that up? How do you choose reference tracks? Um, And explaining that process and going into more detail about it. And lots of people uh, have said to me that, as far as they're concerned, the the course is worth the price of admission just for that one half-hour video.
1: That's so great.
0: Yeah, I think people just have... They've got so confused. They think the mastering is so complicated. And I, I keep getting people saying to me, it's so great that you just, you know, demystify it, that you make it simple yeah. and, und- and understandable. I mean, the other thing I would say is that, in particular, I've got another product called, which is a, just a, you download it in one go, it's called Home Mastering EQ. And it's specifically about using EQ for mastering. And because people would just always say to me, how do you know what it should sound like? And I would always say, well, I just know. I just, it's just like an instinct. And That is true to a certain extent, but when I started to think seriously about how am I gonna explain this to people to try and help them, and I started coming up with guidelines and rules of thumb and procedures and ways of thinking about it that you can follow, I suddenly kind of had this realization that, oh, I was trained in this stuff 20 years ago. It's just that because it's 20 years ago, I'd forgotten that I was ever trained, you know? I've kind of been quite arrogant in a way and kind of assumed that all of that training that I got was just me being talented, and it wasn't. It was, you know, I... The first album I mastered took me two days and I gave it to my, my mentor at the studio and he said, yeah, okay, but do it again. So I did it again. It took another, you know, and that kind of went on for months or years until it got to the point where I would master stuff and he'd go, yeah, okay. So yeah, I'd kind of internalized all of that learning that I did as part of that process. For me, one of the fascinating things about doing the course and doing the other, the, the blog and all the rest of it is just, is kind of rediscovering what I was taught Back then, and I've kind of realised that loads of stuff that I just did because I was told to do it, actually, I was told to do it for really good reasons. You know, because, well, I mean, that the the example I just gave is perfect. You know, that if you if you do the level, then the EQ, then that you kind of automatically do the most minimalist thing. Whereas if you just let's say you waded in with a song and you didn't get the level right first, and you went, oh, okay, we need some EQ and we need some compression. Great, now I'll set the level. As soon as you change the level, the way that you feel about the EQ and the compression completely changes, right? Because of the smile curve, because of that whole saber-toothed tiger thing. and So then you're back to square one. You've got to retweak everything. Whereas if you start off with a level, then that happens first and you might not need to do any of that other stuff.
1: Now, your home mastering masterclass, that is actually something that if somebody's interested in teaching themselves how to master or or learn how to do that, that becomes available on sort of a a few times a year. It's it's
0: three or four times a year, depending on what else is going on. Like there's one running just now as we're recording this um, and there will be one sometime in the new year. There's always one. Uh, starting around April but yeah you can give people a link that will take them there and if the course is running it'll tell them how to sign up and if not they can just drop their name in an in a email in a box they'll get notified as soon as it happens again Hey, everybody. It's Lid Shaw, and thanks so much for listening.
1: We're just about to go into the jam session with Ian Shepard, but before we do, I wanted to let you know that you can find out all about the Home Mastering Masterclass and the Perception plugin in the show notes for this episode. Just go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash eight, and I'll have all the links there. Also, I'll include any special discount offers that Ian has set up just for you, Rockstars. Thanks for listening, and here we go into the jam session. Cheers. Ian, I'd like to take you into the jam session next, and uh, ask you a few quick questions that you can give kind of quick answers to, and we can also talk about the plugin that you've developed. So the uh, the first one was tell us a little bit about what was holding you back at the start when you were getting into recording and mastering. You know, something inspiring to people who are at that point now and think, how can I do
0: this? I had no gear. Uh, so so I I went to university, like I said, I did the the course, and I got home after I graduated and i had nothing uh to the point where i was making i, I wired up i had a, a record deck and a cd player and i ran one into the left channel and one into the right channel of my cassette deck and i was making making kind of ambient mix tapes by by kind of fading things in and out on the left and right channels, <laughs> <laughs> to, to kind of create this, this this thing. And and I so what I did is I persuaded my parents to buy me an Amiga computer. Uh, it's another thing nobody will remember. The cool thing about the Amiga was it had a built-in eight-bit sampler, and it could play back four simultaneous eight-bit samples. Um, and they had you had software for these. They were, it was called Tracker software. It was like really primitive sequencing software, and that enabled me. It just I just got me started. I was able to make noises, you know, and start writing little kind of tunes. And and then I went to work at that studio for free. Um, and I kind of turned up initially and said to him, you know, do you want... Any-? And he was like, no, I don't need anybody. So I would go along to a class that he ran one evening for, for college kids and just kind of write strange little pieces of music in his class and, and then help him clear up afterwards without having to be asked. And eventually he was like, oh, well, now I need somebody. And, you know, you're kind of helpful. So let's try that. And, I mean, he was the guy who said to SRT when they phoned up, I don't want to tell you where he is because I want to employ him, which oh, is great. about the best recommendation you could get for anybody. So I would say just get into it somehow. Anyhow, it doesn't matter what the gear is. It's what you do with it. Awesome. Great
1: advice. Great advice. And people certainly have a lot more gear available through software and computers now than... You might have had at that point.
0: Oh, completely. I mean, yeah. Nowadays, three hundred dollar laptop and some free software, and you've got something that is probably, technically speaking, better quality than what the Beatles recorded their entire output on. You know, um, <laughs> it's okay. I, I that's probably a controversial <laughs> statement, but you, you know what I mean. In terms of yeah. signal to noise ratio and distortion and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's like night and day. All right. So, what was some of the best advice you ever received about recording when you were starting out? So this is a piece of mastering advice, and it was, I don't remember who gave it to me, but it was after I had been banging my head against trying to get this thing, I think it was a live album, to sound good, you know, for hours. And I kind of, I despaired and took it through to one of my colleagues and said, you know, I just, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, And he listened to about 20 seconds and he said... That's good. You're there. It, it's never going to sound any better than that, you know. And he reeled off a list of problems with the recording which I knew about. That was what I'd been trying to fix. And he just said, "You know, there's there's nothing really you can do about any of that stuff. You're just going to have to, you know, do what you can with it and then let it go." And that was a really valuable lesson, you know, the understanding of the difference between what you have in your head for where you want something to go and the reality of what has been recorded. I mean, when you're recording obviously you want to try and get as close as you possibly can to what's in your head but even then there, there are always limits in terms of the quality of the instrument or the space you're recording in the player and when you get to mastering typically you know you've only got a stereo file to work with it it is what it is so i think it's a really valuable skill of mastering is to quickly assess what the potential of the piece of music that you're working is and achieve that potential and then not waste any more time trying to take it beyond that you know one of the biggest differences between a pro mastering engineer and somebody who does it you know kind of occasionally or for their own enjoyment is probably the time taken it's rare that i take more than a day to master something but i've heard people say that they spend weeks or months mastering their work and maybe that's time well spent, you know, maybe they're learning a load of lessons along the way. But I think there's a good chance that actually they would be better spending their time doing more recording and mixing and and, and writing songs because probably they achieved the best result that they were going to get for that song pretty early on in the process. And, you know, the trouble is, it's really hard to know the difference, to have those instincts. Well, fortunately, the solution for that
1: is just keep doing it. You will get it right
0: yeah it's i'm a huge fan of the uh, hitchhiker's guides of the galaxy mm-hmm. um, and there's a bit in that where one of the uh, there's a there's a radio broadcast going out and it kind of says to to, to all this, uh, evolved life forms out there and to the rest of you guys the secret is to keep banging the rocks together guys <laughs> that's right. that's right that's the secret okay
1: so next up can you share with us a recording tip hack or secret sauce from your experience something that somebody could use right now
0: I've already mentioned it and it's it's loudness matching um and it's so simple and it's so powerful um you know this thing that you're comparing to like you know the so you have a mix and you think uh the vocal needs a little bit more 2k so you add that in and you think it sounds better but you're not comparing it to what it was before by, you know, you bypass it in and out to hear how it sounds. You go, yeah, you think it sounds better. And then later on, you realize that actually you've just made it. The vocal is cutting through a little bit more, but it just sounds kind of hard and bright. And that's not what you wanted. Whereas if, when you've done it before, when you were bypassing the EQ, you had also just knocked the fader up and down slightly to compensate for the change in loudness that that EQ makes, you would have had a fairer picture of the way that it sounds. Mm-hmm. And it applies so much in mastering. You know, you add uh, a tiny little bit of low end to to beef up the kick and you think it sounds great but everything you do changes the way the loudness sounds and if you don't match the levels when you try and decide if it was a good idea or not then that's when you run into problems that's the problem with the loudness wars people keep pushing the loudness up and up and up and they think yeah well it sounds louder it sounds better until you match those loudnesses and you realise that the one that you pushed right up against the stops has lost all of its life and its punch and its impact and you know, its detail in the process and you got fooled by the loudness into thinking it was sounding better and it was just louder yeah. um, and it's, you know, I mean it's that's, I think that's such a big deal, that's that's what my plugin is that I've developed, um, I developed this plugin called Perception, which which does it, it does it automatically, so for me when I used to master it would be Here's the song, do all my processing. Now I have to loudness match to do my A-B comparison to make sure that what I did was a good thing to do. Um, and perception basically automates that process. So you plug it in, you do stuff, and you get an instant bypass of all the processing you've done with loudness matching so that you can get a fair objective picture of the changes that you're making and, and what's happened without being fooled by the loudness. Um, mm. And the thing about it is it, it's it's... Like I say, it's so powerful because, I mean, it was my idea for the plugin, mm-hmm. you know, I, and but it's amazed me at how much difference it makes. And I think one of the reasons is that it makes it so much easier because back when I would, didn't have the plugin to use, you know, I would do that process of loudness match, compare, and then I'd make some adjustment and then i would usually go, okay, that's fine. And I'd move on. Whereas now what I do is like make my changes, use perception. Okay. Make a tweak, use perception again. Right. To hear it. It's a much finer difference this time. But again, I make, and I'm like, Oh, well, you know what? Now I've done that. I could do this. And then you use it. So it, you kind of, I think of it as like a microscope for the, for the, for the mix and for the sound. It kind of, it reveals things that you otherwise wouldn't be aware of. Um, so, but people don't have to, you can do that yourself. You know, you just need, there are loads of loudness meters out there now. Um, the, Mm -hmm. The uh, they use LUFs loudness units full scale to to measure the loudness. So you just measure the loudness of what you had before, measure the loudness afterwards, and then adjust the levels so that they match, and then you can do that comparison yourself.
1: Yeah, but I want to use your plugin, so tell me more about that. <laughs> it sounds really cool. So Perception is a plugin that I would add somewhere in my my plugins chain, and it will automatically um, match sort of my all my plugins in bypass versus all my plugins in. Am I understanding that correctly?
0: Yeah, so it's designed to be used in mastering. So let's say, as part of the mastering process, you add uh, three dBs of 100 hertz, and you boost the level by six dBs, and you've got a tiny little high shelf in there. You could well, there's a, there's a couple of uh, doors out there where you can bypass all those plugins in one hit. I think mm-hmm. Reaper lets you do that, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you do that, the level drops by six dBs, and you know we talked about it several times. When you do that. You have no idea then whether that change that you heard is is good or not. <clears throat> so perception, you put it's got two bits to it. There's the the source and the controller. So you put the source in at the beginning of your plugin chain. You put the controller in at the end. And while the music's playing, it measures the loudness before and after, and it balances them. You hit balance, and it matches the loudness. So that when you hit bypass, um, it's like hitting bypass of all the plugins, but with the loudnesses. Um, as near perfect matched as you can do. Um, And it also has sync compensation. So you can use it with, or you can even use it with an external hardware chain. Mm, Um, So, you know, it compensates for all the latency, all the rest of it. So you get a seamless instant bypass with the, loudness is matched so you can hear exactly what that processing is doing and whether it's a good thing or not okay so stop the presses
1: for just a sec can i use this in a mix on on individual tracks as well while
0: i'm I'm balancing all these different tracks and mixing uh you can but that's not what it's designed for and it's a bit clunky with the current version but the good news is we're working on an update or possibly a new version which is going to look at it well and we've also got lots of other really cool ideas for using it in a mixing context um but that's that's a ways off yet but yeah but i
1: could still you know if i'm starting to put things on my master bus in a mix um and affecting the the whole master bus or i'm just turning up my mix making it louder for a client as i print it that's an opportunity to maybe use this to really
0: check the difference and yeah absolutely it's it's perfect for any processing you've got on the two bus um on the stereo output you can use it exactly as it's intended and you can use it on individual tracks within the mix as well it's just you can't listen to them within the context of the mix yeah the current version yeah um and that's what we're going to add it's so cool because i definitely know
1: what that's like to have a mix work on it then start putting stuff on the two bus and turning it up louder and then i'm like oh that's that's a little bit louder i i think it's better you know until you get out and you listen back later and it doesn't sound like what you thought it sounded like outside of the studio or wherever. So having that ability to really get a sense of what are you doing to this? And and I'm going to explain this a little bit further, which you've done already, but I want to make sure everybody understands. You talked about adding plugins to a song as you're mastering it, and it makes everything sound a little better. And then if you bypass all the plugins, well, then the level drops way down. So you're inclined to think, well, that doesn't sound as good when it was down low like that. This has got to sound better. But the reason why you can't really tell is because if you were to take that low one and just simply turn the volume up, that's what you get with this perception plugin. You get that understanding of how it sounds if you were to just turn up the volume of your volume knob mm-hmm. and, and compare, you know, because you could accidentally, and, and maybe people who are listening to this now have experienced that. I know I've done this before. You can very easily and accidentally take some of the life out of your mix by over-processing it, um, just trying to turn it up and make it louder.
0: Mm, absolutely and i mean i still do it after 20 years doing the job you know it's you know you hear the song you're kind of excited about what you want to achieve you can kind of, oh i'll have a bit of this bit of that you know and you get to the end you think yeah fantastic but if you take the time to exactly either turn up the original or turn down the one you're listening so that they're they're matched then you might realize well actually i mean usually for me it's a balance you know it's not like you it's you don't usually go oh that was a completely crap thing to do um it's usually, well, I like that, but I've gone a little bit too far or, okay, th- that's an improvement, but I've also maybe sucked a little bit of the life out of the snare or whatever, you know? So it's it kind of enables you to fine tune that and, yeah, just, just get a better result. It's kind
1: of like having a, a pint at the pub, right? And I like that, but I've gone a little bit too far. <laughs> By the end of the night, perhaps. Okay. So Ian, thank you so much. Let me get hit you with a couple of last questions and then we'll jump off. This one's a little bit of a curveball, but can you share with our listeners a great resource maybe for the business part of running a studio or a mastering studio, you know, something, whether it's software or or a technique of dealing with the business aspect of doing what you do?
0: I feel completely unqualified to answer that um, because the business aspect of all this is something that I really struggle with (laughs) but what I would say I mean for me you know people say to me uh what are you doing giving away um information and advice to people to do mastering you're doing yourself out of work um and that's just not my experience at all you know what I've found is that um some people will do the masterclass course and then ask me to master their stuff anyway or people will come to me and ask to do the mastering and then Actually, they find that, you know, for whatever reason, they're not going to go that way, but they take the course and decide to do it themselves or it just works. Um, Everything feeds into everything else. I've just, I've had so much more success since doing the website, since it's almost like the more information I give away, the more work I get to do, you know, and the more people ask me to do things and the more opportunities that I come along. So I think my advice is just uh, be as generous as you possibly can. Um... Mm-hmm. with whatever it is you're doing you know if there's I don't know some band who come in and you really want to work with them you really think the music is great but they don't have enough to pay the your your hourly rate you know if you can if you can afford to cut them a deal um, because you never know when they're going to go on to be a huge hit or just to talk to somebody else who's cool who comes in and wants to pay twice your normal daily rate you know Or I think I just I uh, I'm going to say, it's not that I believe in karma, you know, but I do think you get back what you put out. um, And that just keeps being my experience in terms of ever ever since I went solo. Um, And yeah, I think that's, that's my advice. You know, you need to be, you need to get enough money coming in the door, you know, to to live obviously into whatever commitments you have, Mm. but uh, as much as possible, just, yeah, be generous.
1: Yeah. I think that's good advice. Okay. So last question, Ian, this is the big, the big doozy. If you were dropped into a strange city and you could only take a simple setup for recording or mastering, what would you choose? How would you find people to record or master? And how would you make ends meet during the process so that you could continue doing
0: this long term? This is supposed to be a short question. (laughs) So it's a dull answer, but I mean, in terms of tools, all you need is a laptop, um, Literally, there is stuff out there that is free or almost free because the kind of the unofficial tagline of the home mastering masterclass is "It ain't what you use, it's the way that you use it." And and in mastering in particular, people get so hung up on the gear. And I mean, I go out and do uh, talks in colleges now, where it's a kind of I call it home mastering essentials. It's just or, or uh, music mastering essentials. It's just a kind of just a kind of primer for people to to get people into the idea of what mastering is and and how to help them. And at the end, I do a demo and I can do it in any door that they have available at the college. All I need is EQ and a limiter. Just using those two tools, you can improve the way that we perceive a collection of songs by a factor of, I don't know, maybe a bazillion. Yeah. 50, hundred percent. You know, it's, you can make huge changes just with those tiny things in terms of so if you have your laptop and you're arriving in a new place and you just want to get started, um, I think you probably have to start doing work for free. You know, I worked for whatever it was, three or four months for free in that studio after I graduated, and because I got on well with the guy who ran that studio and I worked hard, he gave you know me, me that great reference that enabled me to get my first job. These days, those opportunities are much harder to come by, but I think it still works. You know, to find somebody you like or you think is cool and offer to do something for them for free so that you have, then you have proof, right? That you can do what you say you can do. If you if you want to be a mastering engineer, you have to be able to take somebody's music and make it sound awesome. People aren't going to pay you to do that until you've shown them that you can do it. I'm not suggesting that anybody works for free for any length of time, but as a way of building up a portfolio and getting credibility, I think that's really valuable. And I think if you do that, because you know, you're kind of, like you said, paying it forward, be you know, people are going to go, well, he's cool. You know, he did that for us. And they'll mention it to somebody else who maybe does have some money to spend. And I think that you can, you've got the opportunity there to snowball it into something that, that takes you forward.
1: Yeah, that's great. Great advice. Uh, Certainly was my experience starting out, you know, I just, any opportunity I could find to take my (laughs) DAP machine and my two microphones and go record people. I did it all the time and I loved it. Great way to start. Well, Ian Shepard, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. Can you let our listeners know how
0: they can find you? So, the website is productionadvice.co.uk. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ian Shepard. Uh, that's S H E P H E R D. I'm on Facebook. If you probably the easiest just to search for Ian Shepard and um, look for my avatar the same one that's on on twitter and on the website i'm on google plus somewhere but i can't remember the link for that twitter is the one that i i hang out on a lot that's a great way to to say hello if that's what you'd like to do thanks so much for being here with us tonight again i'm just really
1: really excited about learning more about mastering i've already learned so much from you and i look forward to learning more and more so thank you
0: that's great it's my pleasure i enjoyed it thank you for asking me all right cheers see ya
1: Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com/slash-review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to three three four four four. Again, that's R-S-Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.